The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Shall we begin? Let's begin. By 1997, countless villains had twirled their mustaches and cackled over the impending demise of Ian Fleming's sexy super spy, and they were all proven wrong. In this episode of Spies Like Us, I almost feel like one of those villains. Bond, your time has finally run out. This is indeed the beginning of the end. You will die. I'm Todd. And I'm Dave, and we like to talk about spy movies. We are here to talk about the beginning of the final fall of the old James Bond. That's the topic of this episode of Spies Like Us, 1997's Tomorrow Never Dies. Tomorrow Never Dies is a 1997 film. It's a Bond film, and like all Bond films, uh, it's a work of pure fiction focused on contemporary, contemporaneous events for the year that it came out. Uh, MI6's Bond is teamed with Michelle Yeoh playing a Chinese MSS officer. The MSS has been described as being a combination of the CIA and FBI. Uh, and he gets a little assist from the CIA somewhere along the way. The fictitious villainous agency here is uh, just a wacko billionaire media mogul. Well, what was the name of his company like Carver or something? And then like the paper was tomorrow. Sure. Yeah. 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 So yeah, yeah it was I like guess. Carver Media or some shit was his mm. company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the eighteenth. Bond film. And a little trivia on this title, which is a good one, is uh, it was actually the result of a typo. At one point, a list of the possible names of the movies movie was sent to MGM, and uh, uh, Tomorrow Never Lies was what was supposed to be in there. They accidentally sent Tomorrow Never Dies, and MGM said, boom, yeah, that's the one. Let's keep that. Oh, wow. <laughs> It's the second Pierce Brosnan film. And uh, while it did well, it was the only one of his not to open at number one. Uh, it going up against the almighty Titanic. Uh, oh, yeah, that, well, there you go. Yeah, that December. Mm-hmm. We skipped Timothy Dalton, kind of, which may, we might circle back to Dalton one of these days, but... I feel like we have done enough Bond. I think we are doing our due diligence. It's kind of something I, I mostly just want to get these uh, various guys out of the way so we can talk about a Bond that I actually genuinely like. <laughs> Daniel yeah. Craig. Uh, but Timothy Dalton, he got he got two movies. And I guess this is, this is what I'm picking up on reading up about him. He's actually supposedly a really good Bond. Maybe we should check out well at least i should at some point check out his movies well him being a good bond see it's like kind of a matter of opinion see he was like a lot more serious and a lot more like the bond in the books which is something critics and really big ian fleming fans really liked but general audiences didn't like as much they want the silly well i mean if you're like a huge bond fan i can see that Considering all the other films, right? Really but it sounds—it sounds like you and I might 
very well prefer uh, Dalton to the guys that, that we've covered. Well, if that's how it's described, then probably, yeah. If he wasn't uh, well-received from the Bond fandom. Mm-hmm. I, I'm with you. I just want to get these over with. Like, I think we've described this as eating our broccoli. Yes, for sure. <laughs> well, that's also, I mean, broccoli, that's the name of the, that's the name of the famous producer that brought this franchise to us, right? Oh, really? <laughs> that's pretty good. Oh. So, yeah, we're definitely eating our broccoli. Yeah. This one was had a lot more than I expected. So I, I was actually kind of. Enjoy. I enjoyed this more than the last two we watched. It wasn't as bad to get through this film as I think it was the other two. All right, all right. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll go with you on that one. I did see this one when it came out in the theaters, and that was like I didn't have a pre-existing relationship with the Bond movies. It was uh-huh. kind of a thing where. Um, well, I mean, this one, too, like, this one had been the longest, or GoldenEye was the longest that Bond had been away from the screen. There was a six-year delay between the Dalton, the final Dalton film and GoldenEye, uh-huh. uh, because uh, the whole Dalton thing was, like, tied up in a lawsuit of some kind. Um, but GoldenEye came along and was, you know, pretty well, like, everyone was like, hey, Bond is back. And... I guess I did see that one and I saw this one as well, both of them in the theaters. And I was kind of at the time, you know, just for myself being like, Hey, you know, they've made 18 of these. There must be something to them. Why don't I go check it out and and see what all the hubbub is about. Um, I guess I, I think I liked them. Okay. uh, For sure. But not enough to stick around for the, for the next couple. And I guess a lot of audiences also weren't, uh, weren't really excited. You know, it just, we've said it before, like at this point, this is like, you know, I call it like the twilight of old bond, uh, 18 movies in, I think just everyone was kind of getting tired of seeing like, you know, and it probably is just becoming increasingly difficult to, uh, make any of it feel fresh. Mm-hmm. or current or relevant uh you and i both i think noticed uh strong resemblances of like the second half of this film to the second half of the roger moore when we did do you remember which one was that uh the spy who loved me oh that's right yeah now there was a lot of pressure therefore to follow up on the success of golden eye because you know james bond movies make a lot of money i'm sure MGM wasn't super happy to not have access to that cash cow for six years. Uh, Also MGM had recently been bought and they wanted this film to, to time in and coincide with their first public stock offering. So this caused the movie to be pretty rushed and to go way over budget and the haste to complete it was compounded by what seems like a pretty serious own goal with the script that they had in place in January of 1997. So, you know, the same year it's supposed to come out, they're going at it with a script that focused on the Hong Kong handover from Britain to China that was scheduled for July. Now, can you see any problems with that? (laughs) 
not really. Okay. Well, this is the problem I can see is that, okay. So like the first script was going to be like, uh, somebody wanted to blow up Hong Kong instead of letting it fall into Chinese hands or something like that. So if you make that movie and it comes out in December, but everyone already knows what happened in July. And also, especially like, what if things like went sideways in July in, in real life? Like, I don't think you can make this movie. It, like, I don't think it makes any sense. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. You know? So they're basically like starting filming without a script. Uh, oh. Which that might be the reason that uh, I didn't notice this myself, but uh, a lot of the lines in the movie are, are actually don't match what the actor's lips are doing because a lot of it had to be redubbed, uh, I guess, to fit script changes that were being made. I didn't notice any of those. I don't know if you did. I didn't, but stuff was a little weird. I don't. I, I, I kind of didn't uh, watch with a lot of scrutiny for this one, um, but um, there was something kind of weird with lines and expressions but i didn't quite put my finger on it so you saying that kind of explains a few things to me that just kind of something didn't feel right um i i do know a lot of films currently have all kinds of weird or multiple scene shots so that they can dub into chinese because it's such a large audience for films but uh this is different they had to change stuff and dub over it right is what you're saying yeah yeah, I don't know. I don't know for sure if that had to do with the fact that the script was still, uh, you know, basically not written when they started filming. Yeah, but it could be. Also, like, I absolutely believe it. Like the plot of the the background plot of this movie, I think, is phenomenally thin and has almost nothing to do with the with the story that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And. I mean, it's already like a problem with Bond movies after a certain point that like the story already has all of its own built in James Bond beats that it's going to hit and it's going to go through. And so as you make more and more of them and they're all basically the same, it becomes like less and less necessary to have a plot that supports the story beats that you're trying to get to because the audience just basically already knows what to expect, you know? Right. Yeah. Bond's going to show up at a party. Uh, (laughs) The villain's going to take a a stab at him. He's going to sleep with some chick and he's going to find us. He's going to get captured. Villain's going to explain the plan and he's going to blow up their base. It did seem like they were just meeting a lot of beats in this as well. Sure. And, you know, we didn't, you and I didn't respond particularly well to From Russia With Love, but at least on the plot side of things, it it had one, you know, that was like yeah. cent- central to the story. Right. There was something going on, despite all the sleaze that bothered us and the ridiculous, like, precognitive abilities of Q to just give, like, the only gadgets he could ever need for that specific mission, you know, type of thing. There still was like a story going on. You know what I mean? One of the things that bugged me was kind of the plan for uh, Jonathan Bryce's character. 
I like the idea of having a villain who's pitting governments against each other, but his plan was to have governments fight over each other so that he could have a good story to sell on his satellite. But I, I don't understand why he would need that. Like the idea he was doing was he was creating events so he could get the story immediately, be the first one which gets him like number one in the media and he had so much power he could like control governments. But like, I don't understand how having governments fight is going to sell him any more than anything else he could create. Usually when you have like a villain pit, like governments against each other, it's like, Oh, we need them to fight so we could sell more arms or we need them to fight so we can have uh, something else happen so that somebody signs like a treaty or a deal or we need to pass this law or, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like this one, it was just like, I need China and England to fight so that I can have a really good story for my satellite launch. I think that sounds like an okay idea in the writing room. And then right. you can get so far with it before you realize there's not, there's not really a lot there going yeah. on. <laughs> um, or like, you know, how much, like how much mileage can you get out of that? Um, the concept's kind of cute and I like, I mean, I kind of like the first part of his plan, uh, at the beginning of the movie, it's the, it's the end game and goal that he's got, which is basically to puppet master this one guy into a position of huge power in China to get broadcast. And in return, he's going to get broadcasting rights exclusively in China for a hundred years. Um, for one thing, I think it would be really difficult to find a card-carrying member of the Communist Party. Well, I mean, ambition is ambition, but I mean, that's a lot to give up for a for a a country that relies so heavily on controlling the information that right. its population gets. Right. Um, I so totally forgot about the exclusive rights. Uh, that at least gives a little bit, but yeah, you're right. It kind of, I don't, I don't, it's not that plausible. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I also, even if that is your plan to launch this missile at Beijing, I don't know how important it is that it's, uh, a, a missile that you stole from a British boat. I think if Beijing gets blown up, I don't, I don't, I don't know how much, I mean, for one, it, for one thing, it would be General Chang that would be doing the, I don't know, the leading the forensics on it. Right. And I don't, I don't think it, I just don't think it matters what kind of missile it is. Uh, so maybe the whole setup of them stealing it from the boat in the uh, kind of early part of the movie isn't especially necessary. Um. But yeah, the the plan is just it's I don't know. It it doesn't drive the story. It's just it's just in the background. It's it's almost could not be there and you almost wouldn't notice. That if he had yeah. no if he had no plan. <laughs> right, yeah. No, I, that, that's kind of what I'm saying. I didn't really feel the motivation here. You're right. Even even with this little explanation of I'm working with this high up general from China, I'm going to get exclusive broadcasting rights in china which is a big deal but 
You're right. You could have eliminated that. That's how much it didn't matter to me. Like I completely forgot that that's what his plan was. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you could have eliminated it and still had the same movie because I completely forgot. Like it, it was. It was just kind of shoehorned in there. Like, like the writers were like, "Oh wait, why is he doing this?" Oh, okay. By the way, I'm getting exclusive broadcasting rights in China onto the movie. You know, like let's go blow some stuff up. So yeah, uh, yeah. No, I feel you. Sure. Um, let's go over this cast a little bit, at least the the principal peoples. Um, you know, uh, if you're just going to quick compare just based on these three movies we've watched, uh, you know, which which do, how do you how do you rate Brosnan against uh, Mr. Connery and Mr. Moore? Uh, I don't know. Growing up, I always preferred Connery, but now going back and watching how sleazy they were kind of bothers me. I mean, we did watch one of the earlier ones, um, but still, uh, as far as acting quality goes, I think probably Connery. Um, I don't have anything against Brosnan, but it, it it seems like he's just kind of hitting his marks, you know what I mean? Versus the rest of the cast. Like, I don't want to shit on Brosnan at all. Like, like, like he's a fine actor, but like, what was her name? Carrie, uh, Terry, what's Terry her name? Hatch. Terry, Terry Hatcher. Hatcher. That's right. Yeah. Her and Jonathan Price pretty much like stole the movie. And then you have Michelle who's like, you know, really doing all these cool martial arts moves and, and uh, you know, but it, it was just kind of like, he was just hitting his marks, you know? Uh, so it was kind of watching this. It was like, just, well, first of all, I think Jonathan Price like pretty owned, pretty much owned it. Like I, I know we were talking about this, and it's pretty cartoony his acting, but like he he's an amazing actor, kind of stuck with this script, and he just like went full in the deep end with it. He he didn't hold anything back. He was just like, well, the only way to make this happen is if I just go full blast, you know, you know it. And it's like so power to him because he 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 really did kind of steal a lot of the spotlight as far as performance goes for me. I mean, um, I I enjoyed I enjoyed Jonathan Price's performance uh, it, mostly because I could just tell how much fun he was having with it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um. It's especially there's there's a you know in his first grandiose speech uh to his uh or no yeah well his first grandiose speech to his like cabal his network you know right. of people around the world like ends with this arched eyebrow that like just absolutely seems like uh a dr evil uh austin powers eyebrow thing yeah. that, that just like right. you know was like you 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 watch that you're thinking this guy's having a lot of fun a lot of fun and then you see that eyebrow thing and you're like oh he's having way too much fun yeah. I, don't, <laughs> I think I would have asked him to tone it down <laughs> um but hey it's it's what it is and hey you know you want to have fun you want to cash a check and and have a lot of fun doing it Mr. Price you you deserve the you deserve to have fun Right. <laughs> um, yeah. But to, to answer your question, that's kind of how I feel. Like, it, it, 
Like, compared to the other performances in the film, it was just kind of like, eh, all right. You know, so, I, but I, like, I, like that's what I'm saying. I don't want to, like, shit on Brosnan, but, like, it was kind of just like, these are what Bonds have to do, and he's just going off the checklist of, well, this is what a Bond is. You know what I mean? Yeah, I... I think I I think I like him a, a lot more than other people uh, right. as Bond. I think he absolutely looks the part. I think he does great in social scenes and and you know kind of exchanging barbs with the villains kind of stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. I also felt that uh, I was uh, I also I, I think he really handles firearms well uh, for an actor that's not you know, um, especially touted as like an action hero, uh, kind of guy. Um, I thought, I thought, I think he's a little shabby in the fight scenes. Um, they felt very Star Trek-y to me. I don't, but I don't know if that's him or the director that made the decision, but like, it was like watching, like, I love Star Trek, but anybody that watches Star Trek knows you don't watch Star Trek for the action. (laughs) Oh, I do. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Like, even even when we did, like, uh, Garrick, you know, for the podcast, like, me hard binging DS9, like, like, the only thing that kept me going was the acting and the writing and just, like, the story. But any time there was any action, I was just like, oh, my God. And, like, the worst part in Tomorrow Never Dies, he even did the, like, double-handed, like, swing hit that they do in Star Trek where you just like clasp your hands together and somehow that makes a, a, a harder punch, you know, uh-huh. like, like, yeah. So, uh, I, I'm definitely with you on like, you, like, you know, you mentioned his handling of firearms and watching, I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, he does have that. And, but the action, I'm not sure if it's Brosnan or the direction that, that created that, but it, it definitely gave me a Star Trek vibe. Right. Um, I think he's, I think on the sleaze factor, I think he's a lot, I think he's at least, you know, written and, and portrayed as much more of a gentleman as oh, I yeah. classify it. Absolutely. Either Sean or Roger. Yes. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, he's still saddled with these really stupid after the kill one liners. Um, <laughs> so bad. The zingers were so bad. They're not good. Backseat driver, you know, when he punches the ejection seat of the the pilot in the plane behind him. Now, I mean that. Let's let's give that some some high points for at least being an incredibly creative way to kill a couple oh, yeah. of enemies. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but all the points that it gains for me in enjoyment, like are immediately lost as soon as he says backseat driver. Right. Uh, (laughs) that's pretty God awful. There was a good one though. Edifice complex when they're flying. I really, I really liked that one because apparently Carver had a bunch of buildings and he was like, I'm starting to think he has an edifice complex. (laughs) I, I, I thought that was clever considering all the other zingers. Uh, because you would need to know about Oedipus to even get that joke. And, and I'm not sure that's going to hit. Considering the other one-liners, I, don't, I think there's a more particular audience that needs to hear that joke. Right. Well, he's got these he's got these buildings, and the one that Brosnan's particularly 
commenting on. He's got this massive picture of his face and he's got these things everywhere. Um, he's even got them like in his secret lab up on the top of his like news building in, in Germany, uh-huh. which, which goes, I mean, I guess like it's okay. Cause it goes to his ego. Right? right. And that's, that's a fun thing to play up, especially for a bond villain, but like having them even in your secret lab where only your paid henchmen are even going to see them <laughs> <laughs> right. is pretty weird. Yeah. Um, but they so reminded me of the Steve Jobs because wasn't there a point in time where Apple had was putting up that that super iconic picture of Steve Jobs up on the side of buildings in L.A. Yes. like at that scale? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was Bill Burr on Conan O'Brien that. He was just shitting all over Apple, and Conan was like, "How can you like hate Apple or Steve Jobs?" He was just like, "Look, it's it's you know he acts like he's Tesla, and, and it was just like he didn't really do anything, and it's just the way he advertises himself. He is just like Jesus, Gandhi, me, you know, like yeah, it, it definitely had a Steve Jobsy feel to it, you know, where it's just like, look, I'm this iconic." Uh, uh, a visionary, all, all hail the Steve Jobs. You know, it, yeah, you're right. It definitely had that that feel to it. That just that flat, just giant face on the side of a building. I was surprised to find out that picture of G- Steve Jobs that we're talking about that yeah. wasn't taken until 2006. Oh wow! So this film is not referencing that. No, maybe he got the idea. <laughs> I guess he was like, "That's a great idea." Told his henchmen to go put some posters up. <laughs> but yeah, and and then the conceit is he's this media tycoon, and then the movie decides that for that reason we're gonna constantly make jokes about the media. Uh, you know, when Jonathan Price needs to go do something, he's like, "Sorry, looks like I have a deadline to meet." Um, you know, Pierce Brosnan, when he turns off his transmission, he says, time for a station break. Uh, they're doing it constantly through the right. movie, uh, to its detriment, I would say. Didn't you have a good idea for one of the crappy one-liners? There is, yeah, there's one, it's one of the after-the-kill one-liners, uh, Pierce has just tossed a goon into the newspaper machine, and it's all, you know, He's apparently ground up in there, and now all the newspapers are splashed with blood as they're going through the runners. And I think what was the the one they used was uh, they'll print anything these days, which yeah. is awful, very cringy. Yeah, it was it was it was horrible. Um, I think I could have raised my hand in that writers' room and, and suggested we could do something with if it bleeds, it leads, which uh, eh, I think it's better. I, I, I liked it. I, I, I liked it because it's 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 with the edifice uh, one liner. I think I think if it, it were, the bleed was a good idea, good one. I, I would have liked to hear that more than to print anything these days. The one that I'll give a thumbs up to in the movie is right before he kills Elliot Carver with the really redonkulous. Uh, drilling torpedo thing right. is uh, you know to to 
you know, the first rule of, of media or something is give the people what they want. Oh and, yeah. Uh, that's, that's meta in a light, in a way that I, I can appreciate. Right. You know, that was pretty, that was pretty good. Yeah. Um, cause I mean, at that point he's clearly talking to us. He's clearly talking to us, the people in the audience. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's 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 uh that's our principles, that's our hero and our our villain. Uh along comes Michelle Yeoh, who is the biggest thing that I'm always gonna remember from this movie. Um I've been in or she's been in like my top favorite actresses for a very long time. Um and I kinda I kinda think I have one of those someone Someone was talking recently about like sometimes there's an actor or a director when like you see their really early work before they get known and you're one of the oh. first people that is like, ooh, ooh, watch this person. Then like for the rest of your life, you're all, it's kind of like you bought stock in that person. <laughs> right. And so you're always you're always like justifying your your early uh, your early impulse toward them and I could be suffering a bit from some of that but I do I do like her and I wanted to talk about like when I first decided like oh yeah you're the shit which is uh it's a scene it's a stunt she does in super cop uh super cop of course was like it was one of those things where like uh in Japan it was the it was police story three but since Police Story 1 and 2 had never made it over to the States. To us, it was just called Super Cop. Right? Oh, okay. <laughs> right. Well, there's a scene in that movie where she jumps a motorcycle uh, onto the top of a moving train. Oh. Which is impressive in and of itself. But here's where I really sat up and said, holy shit, is when I watched that, you know, it's a Jackie Chan movie, so they like to show the outtakes and the fuck-ups at the end of those and uh, you get to watch her several times fail to make the jump. <laughs> like, oh. she, she jumps and, like, hits the top of the train but can't stop in, in time and, like, skids off uh, across the other side. She does this multiple times. And this has always been my thinking on that. I could imagine, I guess, in an alternate universe, I could imagine, like, a stuntman Todd that, you know, if it's all been set up and everyone assures me, trust me, this will work, this will work, just do it. I could try that once, maybe, in an alternate right. universe. But after the first time that it doesn't go right, right. I'm, I'm like, fuck this. <laughs> I'm done. Uh, I do encourage people, you can just you can just go and, and Google Super Cop Outtakes to see uh, what I'm talking about there. Um also really excited, and this ties into uh, Spy Entertainment news for us, and is great news for us, I think. Um, you have not watched any Star Trek Discovery, right? None. Okay. Did you know that Michelle Yeoh's in it? I did not. That might get me to start watching it. <laughs> okay. Well, then here I got here I got to be really tricky, because I thought maybe this would be okay to go... No spoilers, but I guess let's just say she dies in the first episode. Uh -huh. And let's just say Star Trek Discovery has a lot of weird, like, uh, 
multiple universe traveling through time, trans dimensional Rick and Morty type of shit that, uh-huh. that, you know, you could, you could bring a, like a different version of a character back. Uh, Michelle Yeoh ends up coming back and joining section 31. And that's oh. her, her major role in the Star Trek Discovery show. And they announced just a couple months ago, they are going to do a spinoff focused on section 31 and starring Michelle Yeoh. Wow. I think I had mentioned this to you before, but maybe you forgot. Maybe you're just not as excited as I am. I am fucking. I am excited about this quite a bit, actually, because I, I like the idea of Section 31. And if they have a Section 31 show, we're watching it, at least doing a brush pass for Spies Like Us. Oh yeah, hundred um, percent. We very much, we very much liked the uh, Garrett character in deep space nine and all of the hints that they gave of the Federation section 31, we thought that is an aspect of the Star Trek universe. We feel is criminally underutilized. Right. Um, and it's also an opportunity to have some actual, hopefully some actual science fiction spy stuff, which there is just so little of. Um, so yeah, that'll be out there. Um, Possibly, possibly. I'm guessing they got the idea after they saw that Rogue One uh, was going to get its spinoff and have basically a, a Star Wars spy TV series. Someone at Paramount raised their hand and said, hey, you know, <laughs> we've got this character that everyone really likes. Right. So, yeah, really excited about that. Um, Terry Hatcher is a repeat subject on this podcast by way of spy kids. That was exciting. Uh, I didn't realize that till we were watching it and I looked her up and I was like, mm-hmm. I know, why do I know her from? And I was like, Oh, she was in spy kids. <laughs> well, her being in this movie tomorrow never dies is probably why she gets cast in spy kids, right. you know, so that they can kind of like pay, pay homage to the spy genre uh, a little bit. Um, she took the role. She's uh, she's pregnant during filming of, of this movie, which restricted some of the things that she could do. Um, but uh, specifically took the role because her husband apparently had a lifelong dream of being married to a Bond girl. Oh, best wife ever, right? Yeah, pretty much. That's pretty sweet. Oh, that's... I did not know that. That's, that's really cute, actually. Uh, and uh, we got some Judy Dench, which, uh, what can I say about Judy Dench here? Except that um, I don't think I don't think you can write a line so bad that Judy Dench can't sell it on screen. Yeah, she had some pretty bad lines and still owned it. Mm-hmm. You know, and she's the connective tissue that we have, even though I guess it's a different timeline. Like, uh, and and maybe that was a uh, a difficult choice to make because because we go when we get into the Craig movies, uh, we're we're going into an alternate timeline. We're pretending all these other Bond movies don't exist. So, it it might have been an issue of concern to be bringing one of the act to you know, to bring her playing M from right. these movies 
over into the new Craig movies, also playing M. But I'm super. I'm sure those concerns were raised. I'm super glad that they were overruled because she is an essential part of what makes the Craig movies as awesome as they are. Well, yeah, she's like a phenomenal actress. So it's just kind of like you, you can't just throw it away like a talent like that out out the out of the I guess uh, tool set or is that what you would call it? The yeah. toys in the sandbox, maybe. Sure. Uh, just just because of timeline issues, especially if you're just gonna wipe the timeline anyway. I don't I don't think it matters. I'd I'd, I'd rather see her there than not mm-hmm. over like a timeline dispute. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. So, uh, if we're gonna if we're gonna talk tradecraft, we're gonna have to get through this uh, story and and thin plot, such as it is. Let's start out with the uh, terrorist arms bazaar in on the Russian border. Mm-hmm. Um, I it's it's a drum that I used to beat a lot harder. I don't think it's I don't think it's as much of a problem now as it was during the 90s, but I really really hated seeing people that were clearly not terrorists being labeled as terrorists. Uh the weapons that they're trading and selling at at this bazaar, which which is it's I mean, it's completely ridiculous in the first place. Um but none of these are terrorist weapons. Mm-hmm. So there's that. There's the yeah. thing that the villains turn out to be there for, like their primary objective. They do get away with this, uh, which is, um, I guess, like a, a, a CIA GPS encoder. Which this movie, this movie implies, and I think it's, I think it's accurate that GPS is kind of like C well not CIA exclusive because we're going to see that the uh, car that Q gives bond is also equipped with GPS. Um, But also notice that it's that, that, that feature of the car is sold as like alongside like machine guns and rocket launchers as being like super spy gadgety, ultra high bleeding edge tech. At the time, right, right. Um, it wasn't a secret that we had it at the time, or that we shared it with uh, with Europeans. Um, Reagan era, as early as that, Reagan had had announced that when the GPS project was finished, that it would be made available for civilian use because uh, he thought it was it was that important and useful. Um, but it's right about this time in 97 when actually the first moves uh, under the Clinton administration are being made, like bills are being passed to uh, open up the the GPS encoding and network and put up the satellites and, and op- open it up for commercial use. Right. So... That's at the time of this movie, that commercial use of GPS is coming soon. In this movie, it's still regarded as like 
super uh, val like valuable, you know, like a valuable technological secret that that you could steal. A little complication here, uh, and and for our first action scene that we always want to have a Bond action scene uh, prior to the credits is that uh, you know they they want to blow up the site with a cruise missile. And then Bond alerts them to let them know that there are these uh, plane-mounted nuclear torpedoes, uh, which he identifies as SB-5s. Uh, as far as I can tell, these don't exist. Um, the Soviet Union definitely had and has, and so does the U.S., uh, submarine-launched nuclear torpedoes. Uh, but I couldn't find validity of a fighter plane launched nuclear torpedo. And it's really questionable what you would do with that kind of weapon. I mean, if you want to hit a city, you could do that from with a high altitude bomber. Um, yeah, just seem it's as far as I can tell, these, these things aren't legit. And of course it's totally ludicrous. That these things would be sitting around and being sold for right. auction in this fashion, <laughs> right. you know, like a fucking yard sale. Yeah. It was pretty silly that this would not be recognized in like, Hey, by the way, there's nukes, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Also just sitting right there and I don't know haggling over them like, yeah. like what, or, i'll mean, give you 10 million no 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 it's too long. i want 15 no yeah what are they gonna hold an auction yeah right <laughs> um the guy on the british boat when they go to red alert he turns a key from one position to another he basically turns the key from peace to war i wish i could find a justification for that i think it's I think it's, I can't decide if I think that's silly or cool. What was this? You know, like, uh, like basically when, when you call like the captain says like battle stations and like, you know, everything's now like hot. Right. Right. Like heat up the weapon. Red alert. Yeah. Red alert. Heat up the weapons. Uh, the, the technician turns a key from like peace to war. Oh, that's. <laughs> that must be for the Bond fanboys, considering some of the other iconography. You are really bothered. If we're going to talk about iconography, when uh, Michelle Yeoh has her, like, secret, you know, tech station, I, what were they, in Vietnam? Oh, right. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that part. Yeah, that was that was funny. And, and, and he's going to be like, look, I'll type it. And he goes, and there's just a bunch of kanji on the keyboard. I don't think that's how the keyboards are. It's not. Like, I think they use Romaji and mm -hmm. they just type the sounds because you couldn't fit 20,000 Chinese characters on a keyboard. So, yeah, I, I like that, that. It was I, so I think maybe this war and peace that, you know, like you ever watch those old like 60s or 70s movies where it's just like where their red alert iconography is just like, uh oh, we're on red alert. And they just like change the green to the red light, you know, somewhere on some mm -hmm. big like screen. Like that's that's kind of what that feels like. So maybe, it, like when 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 I saw that keyboard scene, I was just like, are they trying to be campy or not? Because 
if they're if this is like a legitimate joke, I'm I'm I like I I want to believe that they were trying really hard to be like Bond campy. Okay. But, yeah. Yeah. Give yeah. them that, so that that level of benefit of the doubt. Okay. Yeah, that's that's where I'm going with that peace and war thing, because because that keyboard scene was really bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then. Anyway. I guess while we're watching the the opening credits and and all the women and guns kind of psychedelic montage kind of stuff and theme song, the villains are doing what they're gonna do with the GPS encoder that they stole. And I kind I mean, as far as you know, Bond movies go, I think this is pretty clever actually. Like if you can fool the ship into uh sailing into chinese waters without them realizing that they have and so they're gonna have one of these uh i don't know i've been watching so much star trek these days that's all i can think of right (laughs) in terms of this stuff is like you know you have entered case on space you know and and (laughs) you must turn around and no we have the right to be in this sector uh kind of stuff but but fooling them in that way uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of cool. Right. Um, it's not as silly as some of the other stuff we see. Then, then the other part of the plan. So this is so that they can force like a a confrontation between the Chinese and the British, and then wait until just as the MIGs are. Let's see, as the MIGs are flying over. The British ship. That's when they're gonna launch their, uh, I guess, yeah, saw grinder jaws <laughs> torpedo thing that doesn't explode. It's for some reason they didn't want it to explode. They just wanted to like control. I, it, uh, I, I don't, I don't know. Well, I guess it drills in. It drills into the ship. That's gonna sink the ship. Um. And I guess without uh, having a chance of, of blowing up the ordinance that they're looking for, because they do want to peel oh, the missile. Oh, they don't want to blow up the ship, ship so they could steal the missile. That's that. Okay, fine. All right. I'll, I'll give it to them. Grinder torpedo, though, is is incredibly <laughs> silly. Let it, yeah. let it be said. Yeah. <laughs> Todd's, Todd's hot take. Now, the stealth ship that they use, right? So the whole plan revolves around them being able to attack the British ship without anybody knowing that they did. And again, they time it with the the planes flying uh, over the ship's bow so that people could reasonably uh, expect to imagine that it was the Chinese that hit them. And they do that from a stealth ship that uh, is uh, not as science fiction-y as it might first appear. Uh, This ship is not, but looks a lot like an actual stealth ship that the U.S. developed for a time, but then eventually decided was not worth it. Um, I'm giving it a little plus five points and my best number three tradecraft of the film that at least, you know, in a, in a, in a Bondy universe where we're so used to seeing really, truly ridiculous technology, it's nice. Oh my to... god, it does look just like it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. Sure. But 
I had to search these because I've seen like those like Navy SEAL ships that are kind of stealthy. You know, they they got the polygon shape and they move fast as fuck, but they're not like black. They got those gray ones. But like I just searched stealth ship and it's yeah, it's got that whole weird thing where you could swallow stuff up on it. That was I can't believe these were actually made. The Sea Shadow IX-529, and the Navy tried to build, what is this? Sea and Air Parade? Sea Shadow. That's what it's called. The Navy tried to build the Sea Shadow. This is, this is incredible. I, I had no idea they tried to do this. It looks just like it. <laughs> Yeah, I Sorry. think I think the notion was eventually someone just said, you know what, submarines are just better, even right. even though they're probably a lot more expensive to build and to run. Right. Um, but they're just better, and you know, um, ships, especially British military ships, don't run around with absolutely nobody on deck. They have people on deck with binoculars, like all the time. Right. They don't entirely just sit in the command station looking at screens to tell them what the fuck is going on. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, a stealth ship is, it's, it's great until like just one, one seaman first class with a pair of binoculars can see you. (laughs) Uh, It's it's probably why we don't actually use these. Yeah. Um, but they pull it off. This is a this is an operation we don't get. Bond doesn't get involved in. Like this, this is pretty much like a like a, a, a early win for the villains. And so now that he's got that incident, that's the incident. Oh, and he's created this international incident, and he's got the scoop. This is Carver. I'm talking about Jonathan right. Price, and that is like the. Um, the big super scoop headline that he wants to use to pump interest in the the launch of his, I don't know, satellite network that's now going to give him like global broadcasting to everywhere except China. Yeah. And then he's got a plan to fix that last part as well. So he's going to throw a big party and... M sees that's our opportunity to put James Bond in a tuxedo and have him go to a party and order his vodka martini. <laughs> Check. Uh-huh. <laughs> We're doing absolutely uh, paint by numbers, James Bond stuff. Um, you know, I think it's a criminal shame that they uh, saddled this franchise with the Bond, James Bond line that has to be in every single one of them, uh, such that James can never actually go undercover. This this actually made my number three worst tradecraft. And our other Bond, and just in a lot of our podcasts, you've brought this up. And it, it didn't bother me so much because, like, whatever, it's iconic, but, like, for some reason, it just it finally clicked for me. Like, like I always got it before why it's a bad idea, but like it was just like you're going to a party of some megalomaniac, like super journalist, right? 
and you think he's never heard of James Bond. On top of that, you're trying to like seduce his wife ish or like make contact with his wife. And she knows she probably figured it out with like that, that like, you know, gun under the pillow line. And it, it's, it, I, I, I think it's really annoying that he doesn't have an alias. Like I'm Steve Pewterschmidt, some Mer Jensen or some shit. I'm the hotshot banker. No, he's just like, I'm James Bond, the banker. You know, the entire world has heard of you, you know. Like, <laughs> right. It's, it's all the all the pre-Craig Bond movies almost seem to have to exist in a universe where all the other movies don't exist. Yeah. Kind of thing. Right. It just becomes increasingly ludicrous and the franchise increasingly uh, realizes that it doesn't need to justify this kind of stuff uh, or try to be smarter in order to sell movie tickets. So it just, it just keeps doing it. Yeah. Um, he's also, you know, he's also there with, uh, okay. So we know what his stated plan is. He's going to make contact with his ex-girlfriend, Terry Hatcher, who's now married to Carver and, uh, try to get some information out of her. So, okay. Makes contact with her. That's all right. Um, I, I'll give a little uh, plus five points for the fact that when Carver asks her, like, oh, do you know this guy? That she doesn't outright lie about... Well, I mean, she lies, but she doesn't, you know, deny knowing him. Right. That would be, be kind of dumb. But she definitely super plays down their relationship. Like, oh, he dated my roommate. Yeah. Which, which, <laughs> which is a good, I mean, it's a good little bit of cover because, right. you know, it would suffer at least medium amount of scrutiny. Mm-hmm. You know, did they, did they spend time in the same city in the same, you know, did they have dinner together, et cetera? Like it's, it's, it's okay. But other than that, I don't see like, okay, well, James goes to town on Carver with all this insinuation, right? Oh, this is the worst. Let's hear about it. I, 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 uh, I mean, it, this made my worst tradecraft number two. Like, his line, when he's just like, hi, I'm a banker. Oh, I've heard about your work, Carver. It's like you're really good. You have all this control and coverage. And he's like stroking his ego which would have been a great idea as someone trying to infiltrate and get to know someone like stroke this guy's ego, who obviously is an egomaniac, you know, Mm -hmm. the Steve jobs before the Steve jobs. Right. But then he's just like, yeah, your, your, your paper could reach large. Oh no, that's that's right. He's like, Oh, Tom. Oh, I heard about your satellites. He was like merely a tool to spread information. And then he goes, or disinformation to manipulate (laughs) governments. Yeah. Sink ships. Like, he completely showed his hand. He's a banker. The fuck does a banker give a fuck about that shit? Like, he might as well, like, like be like in uh, Looney Tunes, like the bad guy's hideout, you know, the giant glowing sign, you know? Like, like he should have just been, like, government agent. Like, I think it was later in the film there was that tech guy that went through, you know, uh, right. went, yeah, yeah. Went, went through his, like, record he was like, wow, this banker has crossed all his T's and dotted his I's. But what does that mean? He was like, 
oh, government agent. You know, like, like he didn't even need that scene because Bond just like walks in. I'm a banker. Oh, I heard about your satellites. He's like, yeah, I'm trying to spread info. And he's like, you mean disinfo? He's also like, making quips like referencing a ship. Or and and making a comment like adrift <laughs> at sea. Yeah. You know, he's so he's aggressively he's aggressively advertising to Carver that I know that you were behind. Well, okay, let okay, benefit of the doubt a little bit. Right. Let's say Carver because right now they only have suspicion, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe I mean, okay, benefit of the doubt is he's checking for a reaction. Because right. if Carver had no okay, you're right. The disinformation thing—that's that's that's a foul ball. <laughs> like right. that's a total yeah. like fucking yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but these, I guess, these more subtle comments are like benefit of the doubt, engineered to see if there's a reaction. Because what if Carver is innocent? then right. he's not going to blink at these comments like referencing a ship or being adrift at sea. Right, those were much more subtle, but those came out. Yeah, you're right. They, 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 if, if they just eliminated the like, hey, you're manipulating governments. Here's, here's my bad, you know, but like the, yeah, the or missing ship or it'd be adrift at sea, you know, that, that you're right. That would have been much more clever. Much more clever, but I think still overall minus five points because... You know, like you, you need to be more subtle than that. If like if you're I don't I don't know if you're gonna what what's the reaction you're trying to prod? Like what right. constitutes a successful employment of these insinuations? Um right. that I don't know. The if Carver does nothing, then maybe that's he's a little maybe less on the suspect list. Uh-huh. And if he makes a move against you, then okay. You now maybe you know that this is the guy, or he's mm-hmm. higher on the suspect list. But now you've completely outed yourself as you know your your cover is just blown, just fucking. You're not blown. a banker. <laughs> you're not a banker. Why why did you even walk in here telling me you're a banker? Like, like just walk in and be like, hi, I work for like the British government. Did you sink a ship or not? He, he, it would have been much. It would have been much more effective to be that much more straightforward of an interrogation than try and pretend to be a banker and then throw away like your 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 cover story. Yeah, no, I'm. It was bad. It was bad. Mm-hmm. At least we got another callback to the Roger Moore film, though. With uh, uh, yeah. Terry Hatcher. Yeah, go ahead. No, you got it. Yeah, with Terry Hatcher and Bond ordering each other's drinks. In fact, like I think when we were talking, when we get to the scuba scene, I was like, "This, this feels like the Spy Who Loved Me," you know. And and I didn't spot. I didn't. I forgot that the the two spies, other than Terry Hatcher, is not a spy. But the ordering each other's drinks. Since you like put that in the notes, I I I really think that they modeled this film after the Spy Who Loved Me. And it just kind of twisted a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, it's got a lot of similarities, um, you know, including uh, I don't remember her name, but the um, you know the Bond girl in the Spy Who Loved Me was uh, sold to us at least as a competent Russian agent, and at least there's this progression of 
you've got our pure, totally fucking ignorant damsel in distress in the Sean Con- in from Russia with love. Uh-huh. Then you've got in the spy who loved me. At least the the girl has a resume, even right. though she doesn't get to show a lot of it on screen. Mm-hmm. Here we bring in Michelle Yeoh. Now she's got a resume, and we actually get to see her like do stuff. Um, right. Although, and, well, and, and with Terry Hatcher, she's not an idiot. You know, she makes kind of, like you had said, like she tried to cover for James. You know. You know, oh, he's a banker. He dated my friend, my roommate in Zurich. What, what, what else do you want to know? You know, like, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you're right. It, I, th- I think this was a much more progressive, quote unquote. It's, it's, we're, it's, we're getting there. <laughs> you know, we're, we're right. over time slowly. Like, it just yeah. seems so slow, uh, yeah. to, to get there. Uh, I still think it's uh, uh, Rogue Nation. It's my favorite MI6 film, and I think it's it's the best. Uh, I I think it's the high watermark for female empowerment in a uh, in a spy film where uh, the chicken in that movie is every bit Ethan's Ethan Hunt's equal, and and even like at, you know gets to save instead of us seeing a scene where, you know, the guy gets to save the woman from certain death. We don't get that in Rogue Nation. Instead, we get to see the lady save the guy. And uh, I think... Maybe we should add that to the list, then. I I know I harped on MI3, but uh, you're warming warming up... uh, You're warming me up to doing this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we'll definitely get there. Rogue Nation is... uh, yeah, it's my favorite Mission Impossible, and it's it's uh, pretty high on my list of, of just favorite movies in general. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, yeah, like Hatcher's got her moves. I don't know. You know, it, again, uh, this thing like, you know, he could get her out. She says, no, there's no way you could protect me from him. Like, I don't see it. You know, I don't feel like it's justified. I think it's just there to make sure that she sticks around and gets killed. Um, which let's see, how did I want to get back into this? Um, I'll mention again, I, I don't understand like bond doesn't seem to have a plan except for making contact with Terry Hatcher. Uh What happens is as often does is like the enemies overreact. And then that's what tells bond like, okay, it's go time action time. This is the villain, uh, figure his shit out, sneak into his lab, steal his shit, blow his secret base up. But don't forget to get captured first because you need him to explain his master plan to you because you're too fucking stupid to figure it out. Trust me, you are. <laughs> um, I'll go with minus five points a couple times on Carver, uh, which is where, like, he does, like, he falls right into the James Bond movie playbook by having his goons escort Bond off of the floor and downstairs uh, to beat him up. He doesn't have nearly enough information at this point to think this is a good idea or necessary. Uh, Like, it's a total overreaction, wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. I I, I like, just like with uh, when we did Enemy of the State, 
you know, like where Voight was just like, let's just ruin Will Smith's life. Like, get some information. Like, before you start pulling triggers, you know. So, yes, I feel it was an overreaction. Right. Or if you have gotten the scent of the hunter on your trail, then, right. you know, like, your your good play is to start you thinking of that as an opportunity to provide misinformation. Right. Instead of solid concrete proof that you're a mustache twirling villain. <laughs> right. um, I'll be mentioning that again, but that's going to be, uh, that's going to hit my worst trade cap. Number two, uh, Carver having no restraint in, uh, you know, when he chooses to deploy his goons uh, and go after Bond in this case, very soon after his wife. The so back to Bond. Now he is downstairs getting beat up, and now like, at what point does he decide like he's gonna shut down Carver's broadcast to the world? It is a huge black eye to Carver, especially as egomaniacal as he is. But if that wasn't in the plan in the first place, why is it in the plan now? That's a good point. Yeah, I mean. Oh, I think so. And at this point, too, like, just as I said, like, Carver doesn't have enough information on Bond to be making this play to have him taken downstairs and beat up. Bond doesn't have enough information on Carver to be suddenly, like, making this play against him. All he's got so far is some suspicions. And I don't know, maybe he thinks, like, okay benefit of the doubt would be like maybe my comments about being adrift at sea like landed um but it's also equally plausible that carver is just an incredibly jealous husband i think there was like some shots where you know in lines like when you get the the foursome meeting each other you know you get carver introducing like michelle yo to terry hatcher hey wife look at these like hot chinese women that is going to be a journalist for us. And then Hatcher's like, hey, look at this hot British guy. <laughs> but, you know, so it, it, it could, it, yeah. And, and uh, but I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, 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 maybe he was just a really jealous husband, you know, uh, and was just like, yo, I got a problem with a banker. Beat this guy's fucking ass up. You know, maybe, maybe that's what his plan was, but you're right. Like, a lot of it's kind of weird, you know what I mean? Uh, but weird. that that disinformation line really fucked up a lot, and I, I, I yeah, I, it it was a it was such a bad idea to say some shit like that, just to kind of like stab this guy who's this powerful, and you don't know anybody in this building. I don't care if you're James Bond. You know, this goes back to my whole work as a team thing. But anyway, um, he's in there by himself and he's like making these like statements to this really powerful person. And it turns out you've been, you know, you used to fuck his wife, which is obvious, you know, your whole little story, you know. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Some, I, I think a, a lot of this interaction is kind of weird. I mean, may, it could be a timing issue in the script, uh, you know, because he's soon going to. Carver is soon going to get some information that could support him 
going after Bond, even if Bond hadn't like, you know, just been red flagging himself like willy nilly mm-hmm. all over the place with the disinformation thing. Uh, he's going to go to his tech guy, Gupta. Uh-huh. Um, this is going to lead up to uh, my best tradecraft of the film, which is just because uh, Gupta mentions that he tra- he cracked into the bank records and this is the bank that James Bond is purporting to work for uh, using a- uh, SSL2 encryption, which was basically like SSL was the standard for internet protection at this time. But SSL2 in particular uh, had been hacked and security flaws had been exposed in it in 1996. And this film comes out in 1997, just again in a Bond universe where I'm so used to just seeing like completely made up shit. Uh, <laughs> this is this is weirdly accurate. Like this is the right. right this is the right thing to say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good catch. I didn't even I didn't even catch that. That's that's a good one. Oh, uh, you know I Google every acronym. Uh, that that we see in a spy movie. I always want to know, like, is that real or is that not? Uh, in this case, and it doesn't have, it, like, it doesn't have to be. It's a, this is why I'm giving it points. Be, and I'm, I guess I really, I guess I, I try not to, but I guess I really am grading on a, on a curve here uh-huh. is because yeah. it's a James Bond film. He could have easily said, I used ENCYX, encryption right <laughs> <laughs> and, and it wouldn't matter because it's a fucking james bond film but right. i just want to throw out some points you hey you actually got one right it's like I'm, <laughs> I'm i'm the teacher in the class and like the dumbest kid in the class the one that i'm most worried about <laughs> right like actually gets an answer on a history exam right and i'm just like fucking timmy slow yeah. clap like <laughs> you did it you did it Oh God. Um, but the okay, but then right back into the stupidity. Uh, you know, it's a real leap of logic to just go in there and see like if he's hacked the bank records and all he sees is that Bond has had like a flawless career with the bank, uh, it's a huge leap of logic to say, ah, government agent. But if I think even harder on that, if he actually hacked the bank's records, I think he would have been easily able to see that Bond's cover story was a fiction. That, like, all of his, you know, resume was, like, put into the files, like, a week ago. Right. Or whatever. I I will, I gotta give that minus five points. Um, well, if you're if you're a big agency that has like you know super hackers at that point, you probably could fix the registry to change the timestamp. Especially back then, it's probably harder now to change timestamps than it would have been in '97. Um, I don't know, but they, whatever. You're right. It's it's a good point. Like, what has this guy been doing his entire life, and why does it look so perfect? You know, I, I, I yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, the line too, again, we're talking about things that these are retroactively justifying Carver's decision to go hard at James. Uh, Uh, you know, the line, uh, 
you know, which is uh, part of the little, I don't know, uh, catty post-relationship bullshit between uh, Bond and Terry Hatcher. Uh, the line, tell me, James, do you still sleep with a gun under your pillow? That's a good line. That's going to give, that gives a lot of information in a, in a short soundbite. Um, Absolutely. You, I mean, you pointed this out. I'm really glad that you like spotted this in the dialogue. Um, like it, I, I really enjoy when dialogue gives a lot of information because I mean, that's writing, you know, that that's how you find good writers. Yes. You know? yes. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a good one. I don't, but I don't see why Gupta had any reason at that moment to be like focusing like audio attention on their conversation. Right. And I don't believe he's got the tech. I don't believe that the whole, this whole like audience hall is mic'd up so well that you could retroactively just go in and pick up on like any conversation that you later became interested in. Right. Um, if he had had reason to, like, if for some reason it had been written so that, you know, I don't know if Price had some suspicions about Bond and said, hey, Gupta, make sure you, you know, target audio on whatever my wife is talking to him about, then that that's what you would expect from a more realistic spy story, right? Yeah, definitely. Bond goes back to his hotel room, pours himself a drink, gets his gun ready because he's expecting visitors. Um, but it's, of course, Terry Hatcher that visits him. They have a tete-a-tete and, uh, you know, kind of, I don't know, rekindle their romance or whatever. Um, she's got one piece of information to give him. Uh, you know, and remember, this was the plan. This was the this was the objective of the operation was talk to her, find out what she knows. What she knows is that her husband has a secret lab at the top of the building. Okay, I could believe she knows about that. She also knows that there's a secret rooftop access point into the lab. How the fuck would she know that? Well, if he ever took her there, like yeah, the helicopter goes to the roof, then lands, and that's how they get in. It's it's probably his way in, you know. Okay. But, okay. But you would also think that would be heavily guarded, right? Somebody would be watching, I guess. But yeah, no, I, I uh, that is interesting that she would know that. But I mean, as his wife, she's probably gone in and out that entrance multiple times. Why though? I mean, <laughs> it's his wife. It's like she's not. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe he likes to show off his satellite and and brag about it. Maybe he gets drunk late at night and he's just like, "Hey, Terry, come up, see my secret lab." Right. <laughs> uh, who knows? Speaking of guarding uh, that lab, um, there's there's a. There's some questionable shots here, not dialogue, but just in, in like what the movie chooses to point our attention to. We get a shot of Carver just purely introspecting in his office. He's just alone, you know, chin in his hand, thinking hard. And that's immediately followed by 
showing some of his goons heading up to his rooftop lab, looking very much like they're uh, expecting an intrusion. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like this is something like the movie just like, I don't know, someone had it in their head. It was in the script at some point, like maybe he's found out, like maybe he had bugged the conversation between Terry Hatcher and, and James Bond at his hotel room, which would have made a lot more sense and could have justified this, but it looks like he's suddenly, and well, also, okay. So he knows the government agent is sniffing around his shit. Maybe he's like, okay, Hey guys, make sure the lab is secure. Um, I don't think well, do he's it. about to release the satellite. And it, it was told it was a $300 million satellite. Like, be careful with it, guys. Sure. So maybe, like, if they're on high security, because this is a big, you know, moment, maybe. Okay. All right. Bond is going to follow up on that that information about the rooftop access point. Um, he's going to just fry an electronic lock uh, in order to cause it to open. Um I'll say I don't think that's how any electronic lock should work. You know, if you electrocute <laughs> it, I think it's going to stop opening, not right. start opening. Right. Or at, at the very least, that's that's a really bad design. Um, you know, some shenanigans are going to ensue, and he's going to be making his escape, again, through that rooftop hatch. Now, this time he turns around, he fires bullets, into the locking mechanism. And that makes a lot more sense to me. Again, you destroy the lock to stop it from opening, <laughs> not to start it from opening. Right. This is another place where Michelle Yeoh just makes a, an appearance. And uh, running back to the party real quick, I missed this. Um, this is going to happen like, this is the sec, I guess the second of three times that Michelle Yeoh is just going to show up at the same place as, as James Bond with no explanation. She showed up at the party. She specifically told Carver that she snuck in, uh, which never raised any eyebrows uh, for him. You know, he just made a comment about, uh, you know, liking a woman with initiative. Uh Minus spy points, you should definitely be saying to your, you should definitely be telling your bodyguards or your security force, like, hey, why the fuck are people just, you know, getting in here uh, without being questioned? And if you're so hyper focused on Bond, like, at least make a, you know, some kind of gesture toward finding out who this Michelle Yeoh person is. She makes another appearance here again. Uh, we're again, we're confused as an audience and as characters, like why is she in the same place as Bond, blah, blah, blah. But I'll get back to that more later. I'm okay. Slight spy points. I like the fingerprint scanner as far as gadgets go. I guess he knows what, uh, there, he opens the safe, which by the way, looks like it has like a kilo of coke or heroin in it. Like there's a bunch of drug <laughs> Did you catch Well, if you got to make a story, you got to have some coke to plant, right? Or maybe he know. just does a lot of coke. I think, I think the director is just, someone's just telling the, the 
the set dressers to just like put some villainous shit in there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we do action, action, action for a while. And the, the result is that Bond makes it out of the building with the GPS encoder, hides it in his car, puts it on maximum security. Right? Or did I skip? Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. He hasn't hidden it yet because he's got to hear about... He's he's driving away. Oh, he gets a phone call from Carver and he's like, I believe you have something in mind. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm just a banker. <laughs> like, that ship has sailed. But uh, he's like, you have my GPS and my wife in your hotel room. And uh, this made my number two best trade craft was the my wife is in your hotel room. Because that is like a... For a film like this where like subtlety is not like going on anywhere, that's like a subtle hint that like... That, you know, Paris's life is in danger. Now you've basically cornered Bond in a having to return to the hotel. Because he's like, oh, this guy who probably is some like, you know, uh, just psychopathic or sociopathic like megalomaniac super powerful person just probably just murdered this woman that uh i'm supposed to try and protect and i'm gonna drive back to the hotel to make sure she's okay so uh this this you have things of mine uh my my wife in your hotel room is is really a way to kind of like bait bond into going to a specific location and you're you know he's gonna go there immediately so it's it's probably a trap, but uh, he has to go anyway. So it's it's kind of I, I, I like this. So this made my best tradecraft number two. Yeah, it's it's fairly solid. Uh, made my number two best as well. Uh, something I hadn't thought about until you were talking about it just now. So this is Bond's hotel room that he's going back to, right? Because she came to his room. Uh huh. And, then and they're she, probably going to make it look like a murder for against him. Right. And then she had left. Right. Like, she definitely shouldn't have come back here. <laughs> right. Well, she probably didn't. They probably killed her and took her back. Yeah, I guess so. Um, this is... I, I already mentioned my number two worst was Carver just, like, jumping off the handle. Right. Uh, uh, this is also, like... Killing his wife is total overkill at this point uh, and not justified by the facts that he's got in place. I mean, okay, like, yeah, maybe he's just that fucking jealous, whatever. Uh, But as far as like, you know, a clean head thinking about it, like game theory wise. uh, Okay, so, you know, Bond is a government agent. You know he's after you. You know he knows about the shenanigans you pulled in the South China Sea a week ago. You know that your lab's been broken into. And you know that your wife knows Bond more... Knows a lot more about Bond than what she's telling. Right. All this still doesn't add up to she's the one that told him about your secret lab. (laughs) yeah right i mean it's 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 all circumstantial so you know it goes again to my worst tradecraft number two carver no restraint um 
And and I didn't really, I don't know, I didn't really buy him as being that bloodthirsty as to to murder his wife just to get Bond into a trap when again, like just the inform just the implication that she's in trouble. What would you call that? Like Machiavellian? You know, it's like you're suspicious. Boom, you're dead. Like there's no room for suspicion. You know, that type of thing. I wouldn't go Machiavellian on that. I think when I think Machiavellian, I'm thinking more of like wheels within wheels and understanding people's uh, true motivations and and uh, instincts toward power. Uh, what, what, what would you what would you characterize this as? Where it's just like kind of like a tyrant situation where it's just like if you even like smell of yeah. betrayal, I'm just gonna murder you. To, it's kind of like Stalin type of situation. Tyra- like a, like tyrannical, Hitler. tyrannical, yeah. brutish. Stalin is a great example, I think. If, or like if Hitler that's... with the Gestapo, you know, like that, like a very totalitarian society, you know, but like a very, very like. Uh, no, Stalin's a better, much better example than Hitler, I think, because uh, Stalin was famously like paranoid about like everyone around him. Whereas like, I think Hitler actually had some confidence in his inner circle. Oh, I see. I see. At least in comparison. I mean, yeah, you know, he was out, he had the, you know, secret, the Gestapo out there stomping down descent or, or whatever, looking for traitors out there in the masses. But I don't think he was like witch hunting, his own inner circle in a way that Stalin would have tyrannical brutish and Stalin-esque would yeah. be my answer to your question. <laughs> okay. All right. That's a, that's probably a good way to, yeah, he's, he is not holding back. I, I like, I like that you characterize it as just like no restraint. It's just, it, he just kind of, and this goes back to Jonathan Price's performance. Like he just, it's such a cartoon character type of idea for this villain that he just like jumped into the deep end, like with like head first with his performance and, and just this character is just ridiculous, you know, like, Oh, you lied to me about fucking him and that you knew he was a government agent. Well, I'm just going to have to kill you, you know, uh, rather than let me get more information like, you know, or something like that, or I could use her against him or something. I don't know. Uh, it feels like the kind of psychotic behavior that you could only imagine arising from a seriously overpampered only child, <laughs> not, but somehow self-made, or at least have the illusion of being a self-made man. Right. That that would allow this kind of stuff. And I just didn't. I don't know. You know, Price chuckles and cackles over all his villainy, but I just didn't. I just didn't really buy him as being this bloodthirsty myself. I agree. Like, yeah, I, I, you're talking about like kind of tone wise or like character development. Tone wise, tone wise. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he was this blood. Yeah, you're right. Just this ruthless. You know, like he's a mafia boss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Like he's yeah. pulling off uh, some uh, Jack Nicholson departed kind of shit. 
Oh, yeah, like when we did The Departed where Jack Nicholson was like, in the old days, I just would have killed everybody and started over. <laughs> you know, like, 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 yeah, no. Uh, Carver does not give off that vibe, you know. <laughs> right. So um, the GPS is going to lead us to, okay, well, what really happened to the ship uh, from the earlier scene? And we're going to run a, a Halo jump which is going to lead us, uh, you know, to getting captured, which mm-hmm. is essential for a Bond movie. Um, but uh, the idea here is Bond wants to know, well, and I don't think he actually explains it that well. Like, what what is he expecting to find uh, from the wreckage of the British ship? Well, he said he wanted to prove that uh, the China-British, I guess strife is what you would call it or conflict was set up by someone else so he's going to find the boat because no one could find the boat because it was where because of the scrambling of the gps it was somewhere where no one could find it unless you would know that it had been scrambled right and he confirms this with his cia buddy jodan baker uh who is uh you know, for the, his short screen time is delicious, and I I like him in a Bond movie. Uh, in the couple times that he showed up as as our CIA guy, because he is so. I mean, at least here he's you know Hawaiian shirt, Panama hat, you know, <laughs> big and bold. Uh, calling James Bond Jimbo. Yeah, uh, definitely what the British think Americans are like, or especially some high ladder you know, uh, connected, uh, military American would be like just waltzing around like, yeah, Jimbo, you know, like, yeah, (laughs) he kind of reminds me of the CIA guys that we saw in that scene in Munich. Uh, Oh yeah. yeah. You know, just seemed like a bunch of, um, Oh, who's that guy that he's in anchorman and the office, uh, comedic actor, Big guy, bald, usually really crass. Oh, Kevin from The Office? I forgot his name. No, 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 not not Kevin. Let me see. Uh, I'm going to look this guy up. I'm going to, I'll, I'll be able to edit this. I want to nail this guy. Um, David Cockner? Oh, that guy from Anchorman. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He seems like like in a in a if you were if you were gonna translate like if you wanted to bring the Joe Don Baker energy into especially a comedic version like a more uh-huh. parodic version of a uh-huh. James Bond film like you would use him as being okay. the CIA guy right, right. you know yeah, yeah. just big and <laughs> brass and just Texan is all fuck yeah <laughs> uh, and you know just walking around with his with his pants unzipped and doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I did like, I, I liked, okay. So, you know, there's so, so little, so little tiny nuggets of tradecraft to, to extract from this huge iron mine of a James Bond movie franchise machine. Uh, I like that, you know, the, the guy, uh, that Bond is questioning about the GPS system. He mentions the Devonshire and, and Joe Don Baker just shuts him down right there. says, I don't, I didn't hear anyone mention Devonshire. Just answer the man's question. 
Right. Right. You're not, you're, you're not on the need to know. And, uh, that was a really good line. Yeah. Nobody said that. What are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's keep it at least a little bit real here. Uh, (laughs) it's above your pay grade. Just shut up and, and, you know, do, do your job. We get the halo jump, which is, I think you mentioned, I think while we were watching it, you you said you kind of liked watching this guy skydive. I did as well. It looked, it looked cool. Um, I think if my research is correct, I think the stuntman made 20 jumps in order to get this footage, which seems like a lot, but the footage I don't think is actually all that great. I had to go back and think like, well, what, all right, what are some of the best like skydiving action scenes of all time? Immediately my mind goes to point break. Oh, and I rewatched the scenes in Point Break, the skydiving scenes in Point Break. They are so much more complicated, so much more like actual acting going on, so many more close-ups, so many more people involved. And that was done in 1991. Oh. So I got to say, I don't know. I think the stuntman in this, like, you know, if he had to make this jump 20 times, either the i don't know the the camera people that were trying to capture the action, the quote unquote action were just not that competent or the the director or the guy just wanted to like say like hey i can if you know i get paid per jump so i'm going to do it as many times as possible um, <laughs> it's just not particularly impressive and as a you know, as a high, you know, halo jump that's high altitude, low opening. Uh, none of the none of the shots of the guy falling through the sky gave me the, I don't know, uh, what I think like Brad Bird could have done better uh, of giving me like a real sense of like the scale of the height of how high up he is. I think that, you know, this guy could have jumped from, I don't know, fucking... 600 feet and and we could have gotten the same footage in like one day <laughs> that's me yeah if you <laughs> I, 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 I I agree with you it, it just looked cool you know going through the clouds and like the whole explanation beforehand of like oh you have a high chance of dying don't do these things you know that was our setup it, it kind of was fun to watch but yeah you're right it it didn't seem like it gave us the scale. I did want to point something out, though, mm-hmm. uh, with this, because it it was really hard for me to find my best and worst trade crafts in this film. So uh, I'm, I'm going to give my number three best trade craft. Um, there's, a, there's one quick line, uh, and it goes really quick. Um, they realized that the the sunken ship is not in China waters or international waters. It's actually in Vietnamese waters. And uh, they're like, holy shit. Uh, does he have anything that says America on his gear? Oh, his fins and his tank and his suit. And oh my God, if he gets caught, blah, 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 blah. Vietnam's going to go ape shit. You know, uh, you know, which would, 
in line, you know, you talk in Russia and China because Vietnam is, a, you know, still a communist country, right, at this point. And so this is going to make my best tradecraft number three, but take it with a grain of salt, was here is a British agent jumping. You know, remember, there's the shot before that where he's like, I need a small favor. Like, I need you to fly me out into a giant plane and let me jump out in scuba gear. He's wearing all American gear. So if he's found... It's going to look like Americans did this and not uh, Britons. Um, I, I think writing-wise or you know, movie-making-wise, this was just kind of a like, ha-ha-ha. But uh, you know, th- this is as good as it gets as far as I'm concerned for Tradecraft. Uh, I thought it was a great idea. This would not implicate uh, Britain if, if he was found. Well, yeah, but you know that makes me think like you shouldn't have any markings for. for I, well, this I agree. Kind of jump. I, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah, yeah. Like I said, I'm I'm, I'm grabbing for straws here. In, oh in yeah, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> the nuggets, those little fucking nuggets. <laughs> we gotta find them. <laughs> uh, let's see, what were my pluses again? Oh, yeah. SSL 2 being my number one. <laughs> Stealth Boat being my number three. Luring Bond. Okay, it's a, it's 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 solid, but it's only solid in the context of a movie that has nothing to do with spying at all. Right, exactly. You know, and that's why that's why this is like this is why this is broccoli right. uh, for us. But uh, it's still like it. it's we have to do it. I mean, <laughs> I feel like we do have to do it. We have to sew some bond in here. We have to talk about what makes a not a good spy movie in order to really understand what makes a good spy movie. This is not a good spy movie, just in case. We can't be a spy movie podcast and not talk about bond. It just just (laughs) doesn't feel fair. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm gonna be pretty happy when we when we'll give it another six months. We'll we'll get to Craig though. Craig yeah. movies, I'm super on board with. I think you're slightly on board. What's your style? Oh, I like the Craig movies absolutely. Especially if we're doing Casino Royale. Oh, we have to. We have to. Yeah. I think I think that's not just a, a fine spy movie. I think that's I think that's maybe in my top twenty like movies of all yeah. time. Uh, it's it's ridiculously good. Michelle Yeoh is going to show up here again for a third time for no raisins. Yeah. Minus logic points. Again, well, she's just like... what do you like, mean no raisins? She's a very, a, like, adept Chinese spy. She Every time, like, when he goes to the building to sneak into the secret hideout, she's trying to sneak in, too. You know, a good agent would be getting information, you know. We just don't see that in the movie, right? Uh, I think it's kind of cute how they keep meeting up like this. It's yeah. it's the at the same time that right. I'm calling no raisins. Mm. Um, yeah, I I would like a movie. I would much prefer a movie where you know she's also running an operation on her own. But this is this is the third time that she's just shown up at the exact same place and same time conveniently. And again, just to be there, like not in any kind of plot-driven manner, but just she's because... there for the same reasons he is. She's trying to get information, right? 
but the timing. No, I agree. With you. You're absolutely right about the timing. You know, it just so happens they both get there at the exact same time. You know, but uh, she she's there for the same reasons he is. Like they're following the same breadcrumbs, which I guess if you're following the same breadcrumbs timing wise, you might get there within the same window, but you're not going to go find a sunken ship within the same hour. Right. Is I think what you're saying. It like is. She, she, that is yeah. exactly what she, I'm saying. She might've showed up like 12 hours later, or 12 hours before, but they, you know, cause that's a big op. Eight you know, hours. Of, eight hours before would be a stretch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. For, for bond, he had to ask help from the CIA and like jump out of a giant plane to look hidden so no one knew that he was there, you know, or whatever. Yes. I, okay, I see I see where you're going with this. I'm on board. So I'm going to take this opportunity, now that we've, we've talked about the three times that she coincidentally shows up at the same place in the same time, and none of it seems to drive the plot forward, that, uh, okay, I mentioned already, Jonathan Price has... No, even though she snuck into his gala and and told him to his face that she did, uh, right. he never investigates her. Right. <laughs> uh, Bond has but seen But he investigates this- Bond because he's a jealous husband, right? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Like, uh, I have, I'm not even going to look into this Chinese lady that works for a Chinese newspaper who snuck into my... That's a really good point. Bond has seen this woman show up twice. Like, one time is fine. You're just, like, whoever you are at a party. Like, the second time he sees her is in the secret lab doing some, with some spy gadget grappling hook kind of stuff. Again, like, no interaction. And also no interest from Bond in investigating who this person is. Like, he's not calling, you know, like, he's not calling headquarters, not calling M, saying, like, hey... I saw the same Chinese lady that I saw at the party in the secret lab. Uh, right. Can can we do a check on her? Like, like who is this person? <laughs> oh yeah, he never hits up headquarters. Oh, that's a good point. The that's third a- time, the third time is is now when they just again both happen to be investigating the shipwreck at the same time. Um, overall, like I feel like. Michelle Yeoh's involvement as a character, as this separate Chinese secret agent, like none of the characters are interested in her. Like, who is she? What's going on here? Like the, the writers aren't interested in her. The director's (laughs) not interested in her. Um, She's just, she just keeps showing up. Right. I, I like Michelle Yeoh a lot. And I think that, my enjoyment of the second half of the movie is greatly enhanced by the fact that she's on screen a lot more. She's almost constantly on screen in the second half of the movie uh, after they get captured together. But uh, I'm just calling it my number three worst tradecraft. And this just going to the, it's not going to particular characters, just going to the film at large that uh, nobody seems to be in. Who is this woman? Why is she here? Yeah. Yeah. Nobody seems no, to that, care. That's a really good point. Because even if you wanted to say that you wanted a little mystery and then we get like a big reveal at the end, 
there's no reveal because we already it's obvious she's a spy right so there's no reveal so it's literally like let's sprinkle her in and then she gets to do like like some kung fu like at the end of the film like that's that's it and she gets to be a bond girl i know you're totally right on this i i i i completely agree with you it's yeah i didn't even think about that's really frustrating so here they are, and now it's time for them to get captured. And, I mean, this would be, I mean, uh, he, he, he wouldn't have had a chance. I mean, first time at the party, he's got no idea that this is a person of interest. After the lab, he would be interested in definitely having a conversation with her, doesn't get a chance to. Now they don't have a, get a chance to have a conversation with her about, like, Bond saying, like, okay, who the fuck are you? Uh, yeah. Because now they're they're getting captured, and so they're getting marched in front of the villain, where he can explain a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. Um, I think this is the worst uh, out of the three movies that we've covered, from Russia with Love and uh, Spy Who Loved Me. This is the worst case of the villain have to explain everything. Uh, going back to just absolutely my number one. Uh, Bond has no plan, really, in this movie, uh, and he really accomplishes virtually nothing except up until this point where everything gets explained to him. Uh, it's it's murder on my logical soul and and my my love for plot. Right. <laughs> uh. Let's quibble some more. They just got picked up after a scuba mission. What do you what do you think you're wearing under those scuba suits, Dave? Nothing. Yeah. But they seem to be in great clothing. Well, <laughs> they're going to be wearing bathing suits at the minimum, right? Or at I, the maximum. Pro- yeah. Probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Pierce at least looks like he's kind of been dredged off a beach. You know, he's got a kind of a bedraggled uh, shirt, but it's a collared shirt and slacks that you absolutely wouldn't have been wearing underneath that wetsuit. She is wearing a tailored, nice, I mean, she's looking pretty cute here, uh, in her little uh, tight, like, red leather jacket and and white, uh, I don't know, it's not exactly a tube top, but probably a halter. Uh and and probably in heels where did they what did they uh dress them like we you know they're even dressed this way in the helicopter after they pulled them out of the water did they bring right. clothes along for them right. um <laughs> it's just that's just i mean you know my ocd has no limits is the lesson of that story right um she also i i also want to complain about her hair it, you know, at this point when they're when they're bringing him to Jonathan Price and and he's gonna do his big villain reveal, like she looks like she came out of a fucking salon. Uh, her hair looks amazing. Yeah, it's it's yeah. okay to look a little bedraggled, like right. you know you've been through you, some shit. You it's just okay. got out of the ocean. It's right? yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, she's going to do this again. They're going to do this again after they, uh, after the motorcycle sequence, motorcycle helicopter sequence. And then they're going to have that quick shower on the street in, uh, Uh Saigon. And, uh, you know, like 
five minutes later, again, she looks like she just came out of the fucking salon. Right. And, and has like perfect hair. Um, I want to think that it's not Michelle Yeoh's actress ego. What's that? Maybe it's Maybelline. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in uh, the first Star Wars movie, after they get out of the uh, trash compactor, Uh they all had perfect hair uh, in the next, in the next, you know, minute. And, um, you know, Mark Hamill... Like a lot of, cause remember, like, it's weird to, it's weird to think about being asked to act in Star Wars if you've never seen Star Wars. Right. And a lot of the actors, including Mark Hamill, weren't sure, weren't at all sure what kind of movie they were in. They right. couldn't figure out, like, is this a comedy? <laughs> is this a farce? Is this, like, a low but? Is this, like, a B-movie? Like, they right. didn't know when they were in it. Obviously, after you've seen the movie, you could say, like, you know, when you go to Empire Strikes Back, you know, like, okay, as an actor, like, that's what I'm trying to do is, like, right. do the same shit that we did in Star Wars. Okay, cool. Um, but... You know, Mark Hamill, uh, very young actor, totally inexperienced, totally looked up to Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford seemed to be like the the most experienced, well, he was the most experienced actor on set at the time. And uh, Mark Hamill asked him, like, hey, like, you know, we just got out of the trash compactor. Like, shouldn't our hair still be wet? And Harrison Ford famously said, like, kid, if people are paying attention to our hair, we're all fucked. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty (laughs) That's pretty funny. Uh so yeah, that's my that's my bit on uh Michelle Yeoh's hair. Um we're gonna do uh a whole BMW motorcycle helicopter scene, which uh, was always what I remembered the most. Like this was always like my favorite uh, memory of this film. And again, like I saw it in theaters in 97. It's what, like almost 25 years later that I'm talking, revisiting it to see if it holds up. Uh I thought it totally did. I really like this part. <laughs> it was cool, but like the helicopter just conveniently flew right under the path that the motorcycle would have gone in. I don't see any reason for the helicopter to have been there. Mm-hmm. And it, yep. it kind of felt like the old Universal Studios Miami Vice stunt shows, which I loved as a kid. And I probably would still love watching, you know, but it just kind of had that, like, there was no reason for the helicopter to be there other than to make this scene of him and her driving over it. And, and it wasn't like, it didn't feel dangerous other than they, if they messed up. Like, the, if, if you look at, anyway, I, I'm nitpicking. But yes, it, it was cool. It was fun. Yeah. So that's that's all I'll say. It's, what it's about just, just the bits about her uh, shifting her weight around, like, uh, 
Pierce Brosnan and like having because they're handcuffed and so they have that complication of she's got to work the clutch. Yeah, while he's driving, that that was cool. I that that's actually the part I liked a lot, and it's probably the only part that helped uh, convince us there's a romance between the two of them. You know, like they keep oddly meeting. They have these meet cute moments. You know, and she keeps saying, don't get in the wrong ideas, you know, which is typical of like a romance where it's just like, I don't want this. I don't want this. Okay. I really want this you know, <laughs> type of thing. Uh, and, and then them being on the motorcycle at such close proximity, it's, it's, you know, and then she still is just like, I work alone, you know, mm-hmm. type of thing. So, you know, I, the, I, I liked them having to shift back and forth where, She's uh, where she's working the clutch, but then she runs to the front where he can work both. And then she has to go back to the back and change, you know, so I, I liked that. At least they explained why they had to have her switch around the bike so much. Right. Uh, they actually had to do um, multiple takes on that because apparently they uh, were doing it so well, they made it look too easy. And the director said, we need to reshoot it and make it look like it's a little more difficult what you guys are doing. <laughs> um, that goes to uh, another point I, I want to make about Michelle Yeoh and just how fucking good she is. Uh, that uh, multiple times, like they, uh, the director had to ask her to uh, like not run so fast, you know, and, and slow down because like by the time he said action, like she was already out of frame. wow (laughs) that's kind of like the bruce lee thing where he's punching so fast he had to slow down oh that's really cool i hadn't heard that you don't know about that yeah let's hear about it which which you know about that he was punching so fast it couldn't get caught on the camera wow or at least it was like a blur so he had to slow down his punches so that the camera could pick it up yeah Wow. Um, so that sounds like one of those type of things. I don't know. I don't, well, I don't know. Yeah, they're, they're, they're both athletic enough to where I could believe it. Like, I was thinking, like, oh, maybe this is a publicity thing. But, like, no. Like, Michelle Yeoh and someone like Bruce Lee are so dedicated to being, like, like super uh, fit mm-hmm. and on top of their craft, you know, that I could I could believe it. And 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 I and that's a really good piece of trivia, especially, you know, for for a woman martial artist on screen, you know, like trying to trying to like get through that glass ceiling, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, she's she's definitely someone that worked really hard to get where she is, and probably harder. I, I don't know if you know about like Asian American or just Asians in general in cinema and Hollywood and just the entertainment. It's not easy for them to get through. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then even if you do, then the typecasting is real. Yeah, super real, yeah. Uh, Heterosexual camp is how the Fast and Furious franchise was described by a critic to me very recently. And that really resonated. And I really felt like, wow, like, I feel like even though you and I are not big Fast and Furious fans. No, no, no. I did. But I've seen enough of them. Well, I've seen two of them. You've also seen two of them. I feel like I've seen enough of them to recognize that where where pre-Craig Bond left off 
is where Fast and the Furious took, like, started. Uh-huh. It's, it's total redunculousness, absolute winking at the audience, give the audience what they want, just over the top, but maybe with some, some better characters, you know? Like, whereas Bond was always, like, kind of trapped in his own uh, predetermined shell of, of, of quips and, and easy story beats that the early James Bond movies established. James Bond films have always been about, like, hyper-masculine, uh, heterosexual wish fulfillment. And uh-huh. the way I remembered the uh, jump across the helicopter was if I'm going to jump across a Russian helicopter with Michelle Yeoh sitting on my lap on a BMW motorcycle, you have checked so many boxes for me <laughs> that I'm just never going to forget it. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, that's just, it's absolute, it's absolute pure, like unadulterated, uncut cocaine. I love that shot. I, I, I'd love it and I'm going to love it to the grave because that is a hundred percent wish fulfillment uh, that I can get behind. One thing I definitely wanted to cover, and I don't know if I should have put this up later. I agree that Carver's plan is kind of silly, but so is a lot of like what Bond is doing. One of the things that really bothered me, and this is kind of, it was hard for me to pick my best and worst tradecraft, and this is going to come from my number one best and worst, because uh, I can't figure out if this is a best tradecraft or a worst tradecraft. Um, the The British government wants to send Bond after Terry Hatcher to get close to Carver, because they suspect Carver might have something to do with or have information about the sinking of the ship. Um, Then at some point, Carver discovers his wife knows this random banker who clearly can't hide anything. He's just just like, hey, I know that you sink the ship. Uh, And he's like, wife, I know you know him better than you say you are. Why don't you go get some information from him for me? Um, And I'm not sure if these two strategies of using Paris as a pivot point is the best tradecraft of the whole story or the worst tradecraft or both. Um, it it, it kind of bothers me a little bit. So uh, first off, we're going to send Bond to kind of climb the ladder uh, or at least get closer to Carver by talking to an ex that hates him because he fucked up. They're just like, it doesn't matter, Bond, you know her. Just pump her full of information. You're good at this, right? Uh, well, first of all, this is going to blow his cover because she knows him, which it did, right? It, it did. She was like, do you still sleep with a gun under your pillow? Like, I know you're doing something other than being a banker. Ha, ha, ha. You know, uh, that that's number one. Um, then number two, the 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 megalomaniac sending his wife after Bond, he obviously figured out she knows him better, unless he's testing her loyalty or whatever. I, 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 
I don't know, but it now tips his hand that he's on to Bond. And she flat out tells him he's on to Bond. So uh, I, uh, I don't, I don't. I understand this is the access point for both of them, right? Like her and Bond obviously had a relationship, but I don't think this is a good idea for a spy. In fact, I would have picked a completely different spy to send after her and talked to Bond about like, okay, well, what are her mm-hmm. likes and dislikes? What I are like her yeah, yeah. What are her strengths and weaknesses? What are her motivations? What are her fears, you know? And sent some other guy to maybe try and seduce her. You know, or I, I, I don't know, like, or just found some other way to it. It's just the whole thing kind of is weird. It, it makes sense because it sounds it's, it sounds to me like you could have got even if, you know, you want Bond to talk to Terry Hatcher, like it, you could have gotten the same result by sending her an email or a letter or a phone call saying right. meet me at such and such a place knowing what we do know about their relationship she might have responded right exactly instead of just kind of showing up and if she didn't respond then maybe show up i understand she's a point of contact right and there's already an established relationship but it's also going to blow his cover because we hear the gun under the pillow line, he probably already knows she knows. And with with their sex scene later, she's like, did I get to what happened? Why did you leave me? Did I get too close too fast? And he was like, yes, she got too close. She figured out something was weird because he's sleeping with a gun under his pillow. You know, like to, and, and he was obviously uncomfortable with it. And he's trying to express this to M and everybody else. And they're like, no. Just, just pump her full of information. The, the whole thing with it's either like the best decision or the worst. Dis- you, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So like, I, I couldn't decide on this. So I'm, I'm, I'm making this my number one worst or my number one best tradecraft is, okay. is, is, is the play on Paris of, of, Hey, we're going to send Bond after Paris. We're going to send Paris after Bond, you know, where, where Carver sends her after Bond after finding out they had a relation. You know, I thought that was a good play, you know, but then it's kind of like, well, not really. Cause it might rekindle their relationship. You obviously don't believe her. Like, you obviously know they had more of a relationship than she's letting on. You know? But, like, do you trust... Like, it, it doesn't add up. Sorry. Anyway, but you were about to say something. I don't know. If I if I needed to split that log for you, uh, I would go, like, best... Like, it's, it's plus spy points for the plan and minus spy points for the execution. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what would have saved it? If he didn't say, like, oh, using your satellite for disinformation and controlling governments? <laughs> At least he could have pretend to be a banker that's just sought, like, like just thirsty for his old girl that now is his wife. Like, he could have been like, oh, no, I'm just lovestruck and I miss the girl that I let, let get away. He, he, that line, that line of saying disinformation ruins so many opportunities for his cover. It was, you know what? You, you got it. You got a good point. If, if we're going to split the log on that, yeah, you're, you're right. Like, yeah, it was just executed very badly. But, yeah. Sorry. 
I, I had to go off on that. No, 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 it's fantastic. <laughs> I wanted to, I've got a brief essay, or at least, uh, yeah, I want to briefly talk about uh, stakes in action movies uh-huh. and, and what makes uh, a good action movie versus a bad one for me. Uh, and I, I put uh, a decent amount of thought into this because, again, it's a Bond movie. It's primarily an action movie. It's not a spy uh, movie. Right. Um, what? I, I, I've been on record saying I don't like extended action scenes. I, you know, I, I Lord of the Rings, like shit, especially like in The Hobbit, like they go way too long. You know, uh, just fighting over shit. Like, like, I don't, I don't care, uh, in, in very short order. And then I just feel like I'm being assaulted. Um, but then I was thinking about like action movies that I love and thinking about like, what is the, what is the key chemical difference between, uh, like an action movie that I love? I'll go with Die Hard as uh-huh. as my case over here on the left i'll put die hard you love die hard right oh absolutely all right um and i'll put uh i don't know the matrix reloaded over here <laughs> <laughs> as a movie that i fucking hate and by the way i just rewatched the matrix doesn't hold up for one, me at first, all the, the first one or reloaded the first one. Oh, okay uh, it, 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 yeah, but it's, it's a million times better than reloaded. Uh, what's the difference between these movies? I think it's, I think it's stakes. I think it comes down to stakes. It comes down to personal stakes of the action hero doing their stuff. Uh, I'm looking at this, the end action sequences of this movie. They're great. And I still don't really care what if what if James Bond's daughter was in Beijing? Boom! Changes oh. everything. Right. Changes everything. Right, right, yeah. Um why is it important that uh John McClane's wife is one of the hostages? It's important because emotional stakes. Right. If John McClane was just a random cop coming across some random people trying to steal some random amount of money, like, yeah, he's kind of doing his job. (laughs) But he's not fighting to save his wife. And more importantly, you know, Die Hard is about, like, like, even in its crude kind of hairy heterosexual way like it's it's a movie about him reclaiming his um his wife's respect and that's important to him emotionally and that's why i'm invested and that's why i care when you know and and that's why like the stakes get elevated oh my god you know uh, max or whatever the villain all of a sudden finds out that holly is his wife the stakes get escalated here. Yeah. You know, James Bond. Yeah. He's trying to save the world. He's trying. I understand that blowing up Beijing would be bad. I understand right. that <laughs> on a logical level. I don't understand why James Bond cares 
on an emotional level whether or not Beijing gets blown up. And at least, like, in the previous movies, in... Um, I mean, I, I don't like it, like, when it's so easy to just, like, have the, the girl get captured mm. and be used as the piece of bait that creates that emotional stakes. Um, you know, like, it's a lot worse when you're somehow the reason that she got captured. Mm. You know, like, if you put her in a bad position, then you feel that responsibility. Uh, but do you know what I'm talking about? Like, there's there's no it's it's flat the action in this movie is is flat it's action for action's sake i want beijing to not get bombed but that as an audience member is never going to create like an emotional response for me equivalent to the idea that like beijing is going to get bombed and my daughter is in Beijing. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. Absolutely. It's a huge difference. I mean, like, I, th- I think with the Bond franchise, he's doing his duty, you know. And uh, I, I, I like that the girl, you know, typically in the older ones, the girl gets captured and he has to save her. In this one, the girls don't get captured. He He's just kind of trying to like solve the big problem and he's doing his job, you know, but I agree with you. They, they could have made it more of a bigger deal for him to why, why is he that invested? And I think you're right. I, I don't really feel the character's investment. I think that's the critical failure of, and it, it, I mean, it took 18 movies. It took, I guess, 20 movies for them to finally realize, like, we can't lean on this anymore. It's like, just James Bond is essentially an emotionally disconnected character mm-hmm. uh, that it's, you know, at a certain point, wish fulfillment aside, it's kind of hard to get into his head and, and feel like you care about, or even know what he cares about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why they finally had to trash this. And eventually, someday, we're going to talk about the Craig movies and how they totally fixed that problem, in my opinion. <laughs> like, they make him a living, breathing human being with, right, like with person, actual, yeah, yeah with actual uh, desires and, and flaws and faults. Mm-hmm. That, and, it's not and, just and a cardboard cutout. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, uh, they were going to make these movies as long as people kept paying for the popcorn Yeah, and, and, (laughs) you know, there was only one way that it could actually ever have caused them to rethink the entire formula was when people stopped paying for the popcorn. And Mm -hmm. one day we're going to, we're going to talk about that for sure. Let's, uh. Let's debrief this, buddy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I gotta, I'm already late for a Dungeons and Dragons game. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. Agents, please report for debriefing on this operation. The director will see you now. I would have never watched this unless we did it on the podcast. Um, as far as my rating goes, I, I want to rate it a little bit 
around the last ones. Wait, I want to ask you first. So, so was this the first time you'd watched any Pierce Brosnan or, or no, I saw GoldenEye because GoldenEye came out. I, I can't remember if it was junior high or high school. Okay. But like, you know, being like not a rated R movie, we all were able to go see it. And then GoldenEye is like one of the best video games ever made of all time, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but so you went, I, you went and saw GoldenEye in theaters, but you weren't, you were interested enough to see it, but you weren't hooked. You didn't, for this, you didn't for tomorrow, yeah, I didn't want to see Tomorrow Never Does. Okay. I, I don't, I think I was just like over it or something. I, I don't know what it was, but I just never went and saw it. So this is the first time I've seen this. Um, but I I, I uh, kind of feel like this should get a little bit better rating than the last Bond films we did. And I gave those twos. So I kind of want to give this a 2.5. Um, I, I think there was more for me to talk about and be excited about. Yeah, I was actually surprised that you liked this movie uh, more than the previous ones, honestly. Maybe the lack of sleaziness against Maybe. women was, was refreshing. Maybe, something like that, yeah. Yeah. And and we have Jonathan Price in this. But, I mean, like, you know, Promotion with Love had a great villain, too. Um, or sub-boss. Not, well, yeah, that's right, it was our sub-boss that was... That's probably what it was. It's probably the villain and the lack of sleaziness. Yeah, is what got me. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same. I can't. I can't put this. Actually, like I'm looking at uh, very similar movies: uh, The Spy Who Loved Me and Our Man Flint, uh, which I I totally recognize that I liked more than you. I find both of those way more rewatchable. I would rather be going back to uh, the man from uncle and the 1960s stuff. If you're going to give me camp, give me the, give me the raw stuff. Give me the right. uncut, like original stuff. This <sighs> is like, this is like tired, 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 uh, running over the same material and, and it needs to die. Um, is it better than Spies Like Us? Yes. Is it, <laughs> is it better than Spy Kids? Yes! Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm absolutely 100% with you on a 2.5. Uh, the best tradecraft I found in this film. Uh, number three, uh, The Stealth Boat has an actual analog in reality. Surprising for a Bond film, I'll give it my I'll give it some plus five points for that. Uh, Jonathan Price's plan to lure Bond into a trap is one of the only actual like psychological plays that we see in the movie. I call that my number two. My number one is the use of SSL two, uh, the reference at least to that kind of encryption because that is exactly right. Uh, again, uh, just surprising. It's like, Timmy, Timmy, hey, you! I see you in the background. You've been failing history like all this, like <laughs> last year, and you finally got one answer right. I just wanted to <laughs> fucking give a gold star to Timmy over there. <laughs> 
my number three best trade craft was uh, Bond having U.S. gear when he goes to find the ship. That was kind of just a hand away. But my number two was uh, drawing Bond to the hotel saying, you have my wife in your hotel room uh, so that he could know where he was headed and plan for that. It was kind of a nice trap setup. Uh, my number one best is going to tie in my number one worst, so I'm going to kind of say that in a little bit. So what, what's your what's your worst tradecraft? Uh, number three, the movie has no interest in Michelle Yeoh as a spy character, and right. neither do any of its characters. Uh, <laughs> she pops in, pops in, pops out. She's just like she's almost like a prop. She's a very fun prop. She's right. one of the best parts of the film. But tradecraft wise, like nobody seems to give a shit about who she is or why she is. Uh, uh, number two, I'm going after Carver. Uh, no restraint. Uh, called this both for uh, the way he uh, sixes goons on Bond at his gala party and also the way he fucking kills his wife. Both just seem like Total overkill, no raisins. Uh, Bond, James Bond, vodka martini, gonna show up at a party in a tuxedo, wait for the villains to do something, and then kind of do some shit. I don't know. It's he's the worst spy imaginable. He really <laughs> is. He really is. My number three worst tradecraft was I, the just using James Bond as his name mm-hmm. identity. Uh, it's it you know you've brought this up and it kind of bugged me. Uh, finally, this time, uh, my number two worst tradecraft was him showing up as pretending to be a banker and then meeting this like journalist about his satellite and being like, "You're using it for disinformation to manipulate government." Like, just totally tipped his hand, blew his cover. No chance. It was dumb. Uh, but my my number one worst tradecraft and my number one best tradecraft were kind of like I'm not sure. Is this the best or worst? It's 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 how uh, the the British government used Bond to get to Carver through his wife, and how Carver used his wife to get through Bond. It sounds like a good idea, but it was just kind of like executed weirdly. And a lot of problems came up because of it. So I'm not sure if I should make it my best or worst, but I I just wanted to kind of flag that as like, this could have been a great idea, but it turned out to be a really bad idea. And then really, was it a good idea to begin with? Or maybe it was a great idea. I I, I don't know. I I just, I didn't like it. Park benches. So this is where we kind of gauge... Uh, where it stays in realism, one to five. I'm going to let you start the bid. I, I I think it's better than our man Flint. Uh, but I'm I, I I think I think a one is is warranted, um, unless you want to convince me a one point five. I have no argument. I'm absolutely at a one. There's no spying in this movie. There None. really isn't. None. Yeah. And even though the spying is pretty bad. And even when they are trying to spy, it's pretty bad, and they make yeah. stupid fucking decisions. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. It's a one. 
And that's the end of our show. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us on Twitter at spies underscore like us. Visit us on our website at www.spieslikeus.net. You can find out about upcoming episodes. Also, what will really help us out is if you give us a review on wherever you found our podcast, either on iTunes or your Android app or YouTube or wherever you listen to us. Uh, even if you didn't like the show, just give us a review. It'll help us give us feedback so we can make the show better. And it can also help other people who haven't found the show yet find out about us. Hey, Moira, initiate Protocol 9. Protocol 9 initiated. This podcast will self-destruct in 20 seconds. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler. <laughs>